0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. I've invited a special guest, Brantley Milligan, to join us. He has what I think is a pretty unusual pilgrimage, and I want you to hear it because I think it might be an encouragement to you as well as perhaps some wisdom for somebody you know who may be searching for the faith. Brantley, welcome to Faith and Family. Yeah, hey. Good to have you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Well, um, this is um, this is your episode here to tell your story. I, I'd like to, since this is Faith and Family, just to start with your family life, whatever religious background you come from, or perhaps none, people have that, so... Start there and take it.
1: Yeah. So I grew grew up in uh, Springfield, Oregon, so West Coast, okay. the other side of the country. And um, I was the fifth of six kids. Okay. So I actually came from a fairly large family. All right. When I was younger, we went to a United Methodist Church that was near our house. I, we went to that until I was in about middle school. And then we switched to a uh, Baptist church in town. Um, it was kind of the semi-mega church in town. I'd say it was the closest thing to that, you know, in in the Eugene-Springfield area. First Baptist Church of Eugene, a lot of good people there. Um, and we stayed there, you know, up through till I went off to college. Okay. That's where I came from.
0: All right. And where did you go to college?
1: Wheaton College in Illinois. All right. Uh, an evangelical—it um, calls itself an evangelical college. So it's definitely a Protestant school.
0: Now— I think it's worth explaining to folks, though. You're a Catholic today, correct? All right. You went to Wheaton College. Uh, Explain a little bit about Wheaton. I would call it an evangelical Mecca. Is that kind of far off the mark or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, Wheaton's great. I had a great experience there. A lot of good people. Um, like I said, they, they, they specifically identify as an evangelical school. And in fact, they talk about that like when you're there, like, well, what does that mean? And, you know, it's a um, it's a bit fuzzy exactly what the word evangelical could mean. There's different ways of defining that, you know, um, but uh, it's I, it's often considered the best evangelical um, college in the world. I'd say that, you know, a lot of smart people, a lot of very good professors. It was very high, you know, high quality. And I learned a lot and I had a very good experience there. I mean, it was great. Now,
0: Wheaton was Billy Graham's alma mater, correct? Correct. All right. Billy Graham uh, library or whatever it is there. Right? Yeah,
1: there's a whole. So there's a major building on campus called the Billy Graham Center. And it has, um, it has like a museum. It has uh, offices. It has uh, Classrooms, actually, interestingly, in the Billy Graham Center Museum, there they have something called the Hall of Witnesses. Uh, so it's mostly most of the museum is actually about Billy Graham. But if you go through, go there, there, there's this extra room. It's, it's interesting. Um, it's like an octagon or a circle or something, and it has these banners of different Christians throughout history who are like great Christian witnesses to Christ. Okay. Okay. And it has, um, like, Martin Luther. I think it has John Wesley. I'm going off memory here. It has a couple. But, of course, they want to show some throughout history. So they actually do show some Catholics, uh, including, by the way, um, uh, Pope St. Gregory the, uh, the Great, (laughs) Is actually one of them. And interestingly, so for each one, this is a little detail. You didn't know you were going to be getting this. Um, It has like a tapestry of the person. And then at the bottom, it has like a quote, a famous quote from the person. And um, for Pope St. Gregory the Great, it has something like, I'm going to butcher it, but it was like the servus servorum dei. It's the servant of the servants of God. Like that was a key phrase that he coined. That's a description of the pope. Um, And it has that on the tapestry. It's kind of interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Now, you didn't know this, but uh, actually I had applied uh, to Wheaton to do a master's degree there. I visited. I was going to do it actually in communications. I was looking more, a little bit more hands-on, and this was statistical research, so I never went there and such. But I did track Wheaton. I thought very highly of it. And when I came up to the threshold, or actually before coming to the threshold of Catholicism, I was reading multiple books by a Wheaton professor by the name of Robert Weber. Was he around when you were there?
1: Oh, you know, I recognize the name. If he was, I didn't take him. I can't remember the Okay. Well, Robert
0: Weber, his well known book was Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. And an evangelical, generally, at least from my background, very low church. And the idea that evangelicals are going to go Anglican or Episcopalian is like getting to the high atmosphere. And a lot of Wheaton people, as well as I went to Gordon-Conwell in Massachusetts and Gordon College, a lot of the professors were all going to—evangelical professors were going to an Anglican church. And Robert Weber wrote about uh, another book called Worship is a Verb, and— I read that book and then started buying all the books in his footnotes and his bibliography, which I found out were Catholic books. And that really helped this Wheaton professor push me to understanding the mass, actually.
1: Yeah. I mean, interesting question about how you define evangelicalism. And they, they, at the, they're they at Wheaton College. They said there's two ways. One is like historical. It's a historical movement. Uh, so, you're evangelical if you're a part of something that's from this, like organically from this historical, specific historical movement. And then another way of defining it was if there are, they said, this was another person's theory, like four markers of evangelical. So, regardless of whether or not you have any connection to this historical movement, if you have these beliefs or practices that makes you evangelical, and this can lead to different definitions or kind of who's
0: determined to be evangelical. Now, any threads that you picked up, like, I didn't realize I was picking up threads and crumbs of Catholicism in the evangelical world because you just mentioned in the hall of uh, great Christian leaders, you have a pope in Wheaton, Illinois. I didn't know that. That's somewhat yeah, shocking. I,
1: one other comment about that. It's just interesting because, of course, Martin Luther thought the pope was like satanic, like the papacy itself. Yes. So it's it's obviously it's, – it's of course – I realized this at the time. It's incoherent to have, say – these great Christians, like one thinks the the papacy itself, the office of it is like satanic, like literally. I know people that, that might start to sound jarring. People don't use that language. Most, most people don't use that language today. That's literally what Martin Luther thought. Um, and then also to have a pope, right? I mean, this is, of course, incoherent. Uh, but the reason you have these incoherencies is because ultimately, historically, evangelism and Protestantism doesn't make sense. And it leads to these types of things. Um, so what did you pick up at Wheaton
0: that would—I um, mean, you got a good education, and did you read any of the church fathers? I mean, actually read them rather than just kind of a church history textbook or in philosophy or biblical studies? What what kind of sparked you along the path that led you eventually to the Catholic Church? Yeah, so
1: for me, uh, it actually started back uh, when I was growing up. So I mentioned I came from this big family. We went to these different Protestant churches. Um, Something I hadn't mentioned yet is that I went to Catholic school. Oh, okay. Starting in first grade. And the reason for that was uh, my parents just at that time, they just didn't like the public schools in our area at that time. Uh, My older siblings had gone to public schools, but like, oh, we don't like the direction they're going. And I think it was sort of like the private school alternative. There weren't tons of private schools, but there was the Catholic school system. And I think they also sort of liked that it had some Christian element to it, mm-hmm. um, even though they weren't Catholic. And so me and my younger brother, we went to Catholic school first through 12th grade. Oh, okay. And— um, That, of course, like exposed me to Catholicism. Now, I've spoken publicly about this before. Look, I'm not trying to bash any particular person or anything like this, but just if I were to speak honestly uh, in retrospect about my Catholic school experience, you know, what I would say is there were pros and cons. There were positive and negatives. Um, uh, A positive thing is that there were, you know, a lot of nice people. I did learn a lot. I got a fine education um, and it exposed. Exposed me to the mass. So we at our schools, we went to mass once a month, not once a week, but once Mm -hmm. a month. But that was I otherwise would never have gone to mass. Right. So for 12 years of my life during formative years, I went to mass on a regular basis. Um, I also learned... Uh, Catholic prayers, obviously, the Our Father. And it's funny to say that because in my Protestant churches, I wouldn't have really learned that necessarily, even though they would have. They're not against it, but they don't necessarily use it very often. We did in the Catholic schools, but also the Hail Mary, Glory Be, all these other prayers, uh, you know, prayed the rosary, learned all these things. Another key thing was I simply knew Catholics. Now, um, most Catholics in this uh, place, uh, um, you know, are somewhat nominal. Okay, fine. Right. But there were some Catholics who seemed like very sincere Catholics who really seemed like real Christians. Mm-hmm. And I also uh, noticed that in my Protestant church, you know, similar deal where, you know, most people are kind of nominal. They're there for the social reasons or whatever. It's fine. It's not terrible. And then there's a smaller number of people who, like, really get it and it really actually has taken hold in their life. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I'd say a lot of Protestants, when they come in contact with, like, Catholics, they're often like former Catholics, who left the Catholic Church and like found Jesus in the, the evangelical or Protestant churches. And so that's their perception of like what Catholicism is, um, whereas I also knew serious Catholics. I was like, yeah, these are serious Christians that I respected. That was a gift. Yes. And so it kind of removed that like objection in my mind. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so, so that wasn't really a problem. So it was actually in high school I started thinking about Catholicism for the first time. And um, here's how I thought about it. I thought, okay, um, I'm not Catholic. And I knew that because I like I couldn't take communion, didn't do the sacraments. Um, I'm going to this other church. So I thought, how do I think about Catholicism? I thought there was three possible ways to for me as a prostitute to think about Catholicism. The first one was Catholicism is wrong. And I need to actually convert Catholics out of Catholicism to save their souls. Okay. That's a possible option. I'm just thinking through this logically, okay? That's really like the traditional Protestant view. Mm -hmm. That's why they left the church because they're like, the church is so corrupt, we have to leave, actually. Um, Another option is, well, Catholicism is maybe wrong, but it's not so wrong that it's endangering people's souls. I don't need to become Catholic, but I don't need to save anyone. They can just stay where they're at. It would sort of be in the realm of how, as a Protestant, I treated some other Protestant churches. Like, I don't need to join. I might disagree on a few things, but it's it's kind of fine. That was the second option. The third option, of course, is actually Catholicism is true, and I actually am morally obligated to join the Catholic Church. I mean, there has to be one of these three options.
0: And you came up with this in high school. Yes. It yeah. took me till forty years old to come to the
1: <laughs> conclusion. And um, so then the question became, okay, how do I like adjudicate that? Like, well, which one should it be? Like, I've laid out the options, and one thing um, that I thought of was history, and. Uh, As far as I could tell, the Protestant story of history was that uh, Jesus came, uh, he he had his earthly ministry, there was the apostles, and then the early church was basically Protestant. But it got slowly corrupted over time to like arch medieval corrupt Catholicism. And the reformers, the Protestant reformers in the the 16th century, were simply going back to how the early church was. Like they, by the way, they explicitly said that and thought that. Like um, they're just rolling back some of the relatively recent or later developments and we're just going back to original Christianity as revealed by Jesus and the apostles. That's the Protestant story of history. The Catholic story of history, of course, is that what are you talking about? Jesus and the apostles were uh, Catholic. The early church was Catholic. And yes, there's been some development over time, uh, but it's all been essentially uh, the same Catholicism and actually Protestantism in the 16th century was something new. It wasn't a return, it was actually a new innovation. And it also struck me that whichever story of history uh, was correct, that is the correct church. Because of course, Christianity, this is, here's, an, here's another um, uh, the thing I had in my mind. Christianity is a revealed religion, it's not a discovered religion. And what I mean by that is that it's not like somebody uh, went out into the jungle and was meditating and discovered truths about the universe and now is sharing this to other people. By the way, that is like one way to learn things. Like you just study through reason or through meditating. And there are religions like this. Like, you know, again, I'm not like putting them down necessarily, but like Buddhism or something like Siddhartha Gautama, like meditated and found something I was telling other people. Great. That's one way to do it. Okay. But that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is okay. There's limits to what you can discover on your own. And um, actually, the, the Christian message is one that God—we only know because God has told us. We couldn't have known it on our own. God had to, uh, to tell us, obviously, through the prophets and then through, through God himself and Jesus Christ. And so what Christianity is, is what God told us in Jesus and the apostles in the first century. What that means is that true Christianity is what came out of the first century. So if something if, if some religion, no matter how great it is, no matter how much I like it or think it makes sense— if it came out of the 16th century, by definition, it is not Christianity because it didn't come from Jesus and the apostles. That's it. Right. And that's what we want. That's all we care about. Now, maybe Martin Luther and John Calvin were interesting people or had some insight. Fine. But it's not Christianity. So these two different competing stories of history, that's the whole ball game. That's it. Like whoever's right is right. OK. On everything. So you have Are your, you following me so far? Yes. You have okay. your
0: three options. So how did you determine... Uh, the correct answer to those three options.
1: Yeah. So I thought, well, this seems like, it, like something, you know, like historical, almost like empirical, not technically empirical, but type sort of like an empirical question. Like, so just study the early church and see, is it Protestant or Catholic? Like that seemed doable to me, like to, to solve this problem. And uh, in high school, I didn't know how to do that. Now, the, the negative I'll say about my Catholic school upbringing is that, frankly, the, th- the theology uh, teaching was terrible. Sometimes it was wrong. I mean, in retro- I didn't know at the time. In retrospect, sometimes it was wrong. And it was highly lacking, certainly. I'll say this. Like, I couldn't have told you this is what a sacrament is. Like, I knew there were sacraments. I knew there were seven. I couldn't have, like, gave you the definition, you know, sign an instrument of God's grace instituted by Jesus Christ, right? Um, I learned that later. Um, but— So, but there were some positives, like I said, like I said, you know, the spirituality and some of these other things. Okay, went to Wheaton College. I'm thinking about this. An interesting thing I experienced pretty quickly. So remember how I said I'd been going to mass basically once a month for twelve years, my whole life upbringing. Suddenly, I'm at Wheaton, and I no longer have like a reason to go to mass. Like I'm not forced to. Right. And so I'm not. And I found myself my freshman year feeling like. Like I feel like I need to go to mass. Like I miss mass. Like I miss that spirit like that was doing something for me spiritually and I even though I wasn't receiving communion and I feel like I need to go. And so like I found some Catholic church in downtown Chicago and like went on my own. I was like I'm not even sure I believe this but I was like there's something beautiful and deep about this type of spirituality. you know, And there's all the, the dumb things of, oh, liturgy is dead religion. And for true living religion, it needs to be emotional, and blah, blah, blah. And the emotional stuff's fine. I mean, I did that too. But I never bought into that critique of liturgy because I grew up with it. I knew, no, there, this is actually very deep, very beautiful. It's very rational. And I felt a lack in my soul by not doing it. So again, I'll give credit to the Catholic school is that they planted that in me.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. God's hand was with you. There weren't too many um, fellow students, I imagine, going with you to Mass, at least initially.
1: Well, so uh, there ended up being one person who went once. People were all sort of like, you know, Catholic interested, you know? Um, Okay, so that was one thing that happened. I initially was going to major in Bible and theology, but I found at Wheaton, actually, their their philosophy department was better and more rigorous at the time. I have no idea what it is now. Um, The philosophy department was great, so I, I did that. Studied a lot of different philosophy. Here's the thing about philosophy. If you want to study, we studied, you know, non-Christian philosophy, of course. But if you do want to study Christian philosophy, you're going to have to read Catholics because there aren't really good Christian philosophers. Now, there's a couple. I mean, there's mm-hmm. like, okay, Jonathan Edwards. He's like the guy. Mm-hmm. Now, he's fine. He's smart. and He has some interesting things. Um, and then there's some, that's historically in modern philosophy, there's actually a lot of great Protestant philosophers, Alvin, uh, Alvin Plantinga, William Craig, William Lane Craig. There, there's a couple of people who mm-hmm. are great, actually really pushing things forward. Historically, though, there's not really anything. Martin Luther, of course, actually was anti philosophy explicitly. Um, in any event, as a result, we read people like St. Thomas Aquinas, okay. St. Augustine. This was the first time in my life I had read these people. Okay. And you're like, wow, like these people are great. And we read some other ones as well, like, you know, uh, Ambrose and um, uh, Anselm and Abelard and I mean, tons of other people. But, you know, really focused on Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, of course, because they're they're the greats. They're Mm -hmm. the the giants. And you're like, wow, like these are really great Christians and they make a lot of sense. Um, And of course, they're all Catholic, including Augustine, by the way, some Protestants try to, to try to like. Um, take Augustine as one of their own. And he's well, well, they do. Catholic.
0: He's claimed by everybody, so to speak. But yeah. uh, and it's
1: it is totally silly because he was literally a, a Catholic bishop who believed I, all the <laughs> Catholic things that they reject. Right. I mean, um, if you you know anyway, that's a whole other topic. Um, so I was exposed to that, and then uh, through that, um, I was exposed. To, you know, some of those are early church fathers. So I kind of learned like I didn't even know who early church fathers were. I never even heard their names. I didn't know. How do you go find their writings? I didn't know. So I was being exposed to that.
0: Um, Somebody listening, how do they find the early church fathers? We have evangelicals, by the way, listening to this broadcast. So how do they find those writings?
1: Um, So the Internet has made it really, really easy. I mean, you would have had to go find them at a library somewhere, mm-hmm. but there's a great website, newadvent.org, is it? I can't remember the ending.com. Just newadvent. Search It'll New take Advent, you there. Mm-hmm. And they have all the the church fathers searchable. You can read it. I've read tons of stuff there. And there's other websites. If you honestly even just search church fathers, you'll you'll find them. It's made it much easier uh, to find these things. Um, so there was that. I also, um, I I just felt inspired to get a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I just started reading it. Um, and in the catechism, it, it references scripture, um, and it also references church fathers. I remember, Steve, I was reading the section on the papacy. I wanted to understand, what do what they really teach about the papacy? And they quote a, a, uh, a line from St. Irenaeus of Lyon from his book Against Heresies. This is in the second century, around a- AD 180, or around there. And he, like, gives... A clear description of the papacy, like straight on. You could just read it today, and it's like, yep, that's exactly what Catholics believe about the papacy, right in the mid second century. Like, I couldn't believe it. I remember the first time reading, I was like, what? Like, it wasn't like kind of there or obscured, or it was like right there, very clearly, explicitly. And I, I, you know, I looked up and I was like, is that really there? And I had to look up the document and things like this. And basically, in that one line, He's arguing against Gnostics. He's giving all these scriptural arguments. But then he says, even if you don't believe my scriptural arguments, just from the authority of the church, you know that Gnosticism is wrong because the bishops uh, of the church don't teach Gnosticism. He said, and although I could enumerate uh, the succession of the bishops today back down to the apostles, there's too many bishops uh, to do that in our space here, you know, he's saying in his writing. So all I have to do, though, to prove you wrong is just to point out that the bishop. A bishop of Rome doesn't teach this. And the bishop of Rome, uh, here here's the succession. Like he names them off. Right. He says, that's it. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. He says from, and you you have to believe, and he says that this line of like, you have to believe what they say from their preeminent authority being based, based on Peter and Paul or something like this. I, I'm butchering the exact line, but it's very clear. That blew me away.
0: Well, you know what the problem is, uh, at least for me. I went to Evangelical College, but we used church history textbooks, and it was very selective. So you had good sayings from these early church fathers, from St. Augustine and such, but it was carefully extracted to put into a certain formula that would reinforce Protestantism. Actually, it wasn't until I really got out of seminary till I started actually just reading the church fathers. And you can start anywhere. You can start in the 5th century, the 2nd, 1st century. But once you start reading them in sequence, then you come across these things that are jarring, very jarring to your Protestant theology.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll just say, you know, whether it's on absolute succession, the papacy, the efficacy of the sacraments, you know, infant baptism, praying to the saints, asking um, or praying for the dead— uh, Mariology, every every weird thing of Catholicism that a Protestant, I think that's clearly not biblical and that clearly came later, blah, 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 literally is ex- explicitly in the early church. Even the, the reservation of relics and the veneration of the bodies of martyrs is in the second century. I mean, this is in the martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, and so he, here's what I saw. And again, I would recommend anybody just read the early church yourself. All right. You don't have to trust any, what anyone else is saying clearly Catholic and Protestantism is not even on the table. Like there were debates and like heretical groups in the early church, right? None of them took the position of the Protestants today. And um, what I saw was that the Catholic view of history is correct. Um, It it clearly was Catholic and that Protestantism in its salient aspects, um, in its ways that it differs from Catholicism, uh, was truly something new that came much later. And therefore, whether I like it or not, or think it's cool or it makes sense, doesn't matter. Catholicism is true Chris, original Christianity. So as far as I'm concerned, if I want to follow Jesus, the, the like that is Catholicism.
0: All right. Well, we're down to a couple of minutes. So what? how did that bring you into the church? How did you get in? Did, was it in Wheaton or it was after you graduated?
1: Um, my wife and I uh, actually ended up doing RCIA our senior year okay. um, with a couple other students, actually. And we didn't know each other. These other students, um, these other people were also fighting Catholicism. And we joined the church uh, our, the spring semester of our senior year.
0: Okay. Praise the Lord. All right. That's interesting. Now, you've done a lot of writing. We're going to have you back for another episode because there's an aspect of your conversion We haven't talked about yet, and I'll just give it as a tease for we're having you back for another episode. But you have uh, one or more websites. You've done a lot of reading. Uh, Somebody says, hey, I I like what this guy is saying. How do I find out more about Brantley? Where where do they go?
1: So I started, and I am the editor-in-chief of ChurchPop.com, which is an online publication. I started and eventually was acquired by EWTN. So ChurchPop.com, it's in English, Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. Um, I'm also on Twitter. I'll warn you, I tweet not only about Catholicism, I also tweet a lot about crypto because I'm I'm deep into crypto. Okay. Um, Any event. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. And I just urge anybody listening that um, you have a friend. And sometimes we share things that are almost counterproductive with evangelical friends in a sense that it's it's like forcing something on somebody. I have found there's almost a universal interest in evangelicals on what the early church was like. Like Brantley was saying, they make the claim that really a restorationist movement of that early church. Well, just go, and you can actually go to Barnes & Noble. I think the title is A Penguin Paperback, Early Christian Writings.
1: I read that book, yeah. yeah uh, me
0: too. <laughs> and uh, it's quite Antioch, quite shocking, mind. yeah. If you read just the uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, you have a very hard time not believing in the Blessed Eucharist, just for instance. So, Brantley, thank you for so much for joining us for Faith and Family, and we're going to have you back for another episode.